So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You may be seated. So, um, to introduce the passage, I have a few points I'd like to make, and then I'll make points within the passage. First point is, when temptation comes to you and me, it, it kind of coaxes you like a childhood friend. Wants to play. Well, you've been told to do your chores. If you leave your duties and run to go play with him, you've given in. That is sin. You think about it, when you're, when you're tempted, that moment is not the sin. You're still innocent of the sin as long as you resist the temptation. This means, of course, a sinless person can be tempted just as sure as a sinful person. Adam was sinless. Eve was sinless. Both were, yet both were tempted. They chose to leave what Joseph Benson calls the strong refuge of God. They sinned. Why? I'd say desire uh, got the best of them, desire not being a bad thing. It wasn't sin in them that caused them to sin. It didn't become sin for them until they gave in to what their friend said. The devil... A friend? Well, he presented an external object and persuaded the couple of its desirability for humans. It's something you'll benefit from, he said. I'm sure the devil seemed like a friend or at least a happy acquaintance. He and the woman 
talk to one another. He had a place or, or served some purpose in the garden among them. And friends, frankly, are more likely than enemies to get you to do wrong things. Who better to tempt you to sin than a friend, a sibling, a wife, a co-worker, a fellow congregant, a best friend, a husband? Someone you feel is on your side, that's the person. Most definitely, when someone close to you entices you, it comes across kind of reasonable. Yeah, we can do that. Let's do that. Enjoyable. There's a camaraderie about it. Your sin and theirs. You drop your guard. You let your hair down. You like wearing comfortable clothes. Whatever figure of speech you want, it hardly troubles you sometimes. And remember, a desire at root is not bad. That's important to remember for this text that that we'll work through today, as well as for your own soul. Desire is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing. We desire water when we're thirsty. We desire food. We desire human touch. We desire wisdom. We desire comfort. These are pleasures that we want to experience because they are pleasurable. God makes us to experience pleasure and to delight in it. Sin, however, occurs when the things we want are outside the parameters of God's word. Sin takes place when we don't behave as God intends. So your friend, you might be standing out there on the sidewalk, tapping his foot, holding his baseball mitt and bat and ball. And to play baseball might be the thing you desire to do more than anything at the moment because you're a baseball-loving boy. But if that lawn is not mowed and the garbage has not been taken out to the curb, then your friend represents a temptation and sin is crouching at the door. Second point, we're too quick to think of Jesus' desert temptation in stark pictures. Black versus white, evil versus good, hideous versus wonderful, mean versus kind. And on some level that's all true, but I don't think it appeared that way. I imagine things were softer in the desert, blended, easygoing. And there was a familiarity Jesus had with the devil. He knew him. Jesus, as the Son of God, created Satan. And Jesus knew him, both his beauty and his ugliness. The devil was powerful a powerful and lofty creature. But he was also a defiant one. 
Surely to tempt the Lord, he presented himself as a companion, not a threat. Think about that. You know we're on the same side, brother? That's my guess as to how he massaged his words. You know I'm for you. Jesus understood the devil's intent, his malevolent intentions, to be sure. For as the Son of Man, he grew up reading his Bible, too. He learned also to depend upon the Holy Spirit. He set his mind on him. Yet Jesus, fully God, was fully man with real human senses and legitimate desires. And this is how the devil tried to entice him, did entice, was enticing. So as we work through this account, um, you should not think that Jesus could easily resist temptation because he was sinless. No. He was sinless because he always obeyed his Father. He was sinless because he did resist temptation and did not give in. He would rather suffer, in fact, than give in. But it was real temptation, like, like yours, for he was a real man. And therefore, it was terribly difficult to resist. Point three, I think you will see that these temptations were Jesus' way out, too. He could choose a side door there and avoid all the suffering. He did not have to take take it on. Talk about the temptation of fleeing from responsibilities. I felt like doing it just this week, fleeing from responsibilities. Point four. The desert is similar for the second Adam as the forbidden fruit in the garden was for the first Adam. Both get tempted by the tempter with a capital T, who has always been first in his class, the tempter. One Adam had food and plush surroundings and a perfect environment. The second Adam, he was under extreme condition in an already fallen world and had not eaten in over a month. Point five. Was the devil invisible, or did he manifest in some physical form? Here, in the, in the desert, I mean. I don't know. The way Jesus' body had been starving, his mind, too, would have, been, would have had great difficulty concentrating. Did he see with his eyes and hear with his ears what the tempter was, was doing? Did they really both travel to the top pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem? Or was it similar to Martin Luther? Martin Luther, the theologian, his experiences with the devil's temptations, he got to a point being so tempted that he threw an inkwell at the wall where no one could be seen. I'm not sure it matters. I'm not sure we can know. And that's why I'd say, I'm not sure it matters. What matters, though, is that we accept that the devil 
was real and is real. And he was there and did tempt Jesus in the desert. It was real temptation, a concentrated attempt to lure a man's desires and greater than you've experienced or I have. So let's look at verses 3 and 4 to begin. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He could, point six, Jesus could have complied, right? And found some relief for his hunger. Command this stone to become bread. Jesus could do it. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him multiply fish and loaves for thousands. Satan is simply suggesting he do it now. You're hungry for crying out loud. You should eat something. But Jesus had been brought into the desert by the Holy Spirit to undergo this 40-day fast and and all that his heavenly Father planned for him to experience in the fast. So being offered this friendly advice, command this stone to become bread, it would appeal to his hunger. But I think it would also appeal, appeal to him as an easy way out. No, Jesus... Uh, was there to do the will of his father. And he withstands the temptation. By quoting, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He tells the devil that. How easy it might have been for Jesus to relinquish God's plan. Right then. No. He'd relieve himself of hunger. It would bring pleasure, but more tempting is that he could relieve himself of the mission to have to pay the ultimate price. He could relieve himself of the nastiness of people, their sin, their selfish ways, their treachery, their drama, their refusal to comply, their defiance of his father. He could relieve himself of all of them. But Jesus understood. He, he took on human flesh. He took on human flesh for such as these, these sinful people in need of forgiveness, these lost people needing to be found, captive people needing to be set free. Just eat something. Command that stone to become bread. It's that simple. You'll find comfort, friend. says the prince. Point seven, Jesus refuses the devil's idea. He chooses to remain hungry and secure in the strong refuge of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. Okay. Now Jesus is teaching the devil how to make decisions. He's teaching the devil. The one who is fully son of God and son of man is correcting one of the highest princes of God's creation. He tells 
the defiant one what is right and where he had gone wrong. That quote, man shall not live by bread alone, is only part of the sentence of Deuteronomy 8.3. The sentence ends by saying, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is how Jesus lives, by the word of God, and he's telling Satan of the propriety of obedience. Satan doesn't receive this teaching. He won't. He chose a path away from the Creator millennia ago. And you know how it can be when you try to talk scriptural sense to someone on their, who's on their own mission? They're deaf to it. They only want to see things a certain way. They're locked in for God. Air quotes for people who are just going to listen to this. For God. Now you may think when Jesus said man shall not live by bread alone, that this was Jesus just reminding himself, right, of God's word in the midst of dire circumstances, in the midst of temptation. He's telling himself these things. I don't disagree completely. Rather, he He was telling the great tempter of God's expectations. Point eight. We're told later on in Hebrews, book of Hebrews, it was for the joy that was set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I say, listen. The opportunity will come to you to take the easy way out. When God would rather you, rather you carry on for his kingdom, you're going to have choices to make this way. You will be tempted. Don't take the easy way out. Hebrews tells us, When that temptation comes, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider how Jesus handled it. He looked beyond the suffering and the difficulties to the joy and withstood temptation. Now look at verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Point nine. Satan gave Jesus a panorama of the world's kingdoms. A panorama. Somehow he communicated, Satan did, temptation in a way that was immediate, and yet somehow 
bypassed the need to respect normal human limitations of the senses, of the mind, of space and time. It says in verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. How does that happen? Charles John Ellicott, in his commentary, he explains it this way, the concentration of what seems an almost endless succession of images into the consciousness of a moment is eminently characteristic of the activity of the human soul in a state of ecstasy or vision. I think that makes sense. I, certainly something extraordinary occurred. All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And this is why I made the comment earlier about the pinnacle of the temple, right? Jesus and the devil were likely engaged in the same sort of thing there as here. They never physically left the desert. Point 10. When Satan says to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. That's a ploy. That's a ploy. He cannot do it. Satan is not allowed to gift something that isn't his to give. Only the government does that. He says, I give it to whom I will. That's a lie. That's a lie. Even the devil does nothing without permission from the true owner and author. Satan is claiming authority without recognizing his rank. Satan is a colonel, maybe. God is commander-in-chief. Also, it's an incredible offense for that liar to expect he can receive something that isn't his to receive, namely worship. So then God owns all and gives it to whom he pleases, and Scripture verifies the inheritance belongs to Abraham and his seed. The devil has no claim on it, nor does he have any right to people's worship. He's only trying to turn his hopeless situation into his own advantage. A miserable situation that he brought about on himself by his own defiance. Point 11. I thought about it. Maybe you should too. They say everything has a price tag. If I were given an opportunity to live the next five years of my life, and get paid $10 million, let's say. Five years, though, separated from, from what I have been doing, from what I believe God has engineered into my life in time and in space, then would I take the offer? Five years, $10 million. That's similar to what the devil was offering Jesus. Jesus will give you the world of men. That's what you want, isn't it? All these kingdoms, all these peoples, just go along with me and it's yours. 
I suggest, if you're you're debating, which you do, if you're willing to take the $10 million deal, then you're not walking according to the Holy Spirit at this stage in your life. That should become your first priority. If you believe the things you're doing is God's will, then don't ever sell your soul to the devil. Point 12, the offer to Jesus of all authority and their glory will all be yours. That offer is is like taking curtain number three. I mean, it's insufficient. It's not enough. If, If Jesus were to give in to Satan's temptation, it would be for him to settle for something less glorious. The devil did not know the grandeur that Jesus was to inherit so much more than all the kingdoms of this world. The devil is short-sighted. He thinks he's offering him everything. He's short-sighted. And to borrow from C.S. Lewis's analogy, the devil offered mud puddles in comparison to Jesus' expectation of a holiday at the ocean front. And saying that, I, I want to I maybe rebuke us a little bit. Minor application in regard to our expectations for this country. America, right? America has a future grander than what she's ever had in any time of her history. I'll guarantee you that. There's a future for this country grander than anything you can imagine. And though some of us look back at better days, right? Our vision needs to improve. We've become like the old folks who remembered the Temple of Solomon and they were so disappointed and crying when the second temple was built by Zerubbabel that paled in comparison to the first temple. But what did, what did God tell them with that approach through Haggai? He said, the latter glory of this house, the second temple, shall be greater than the former Solomon's temple. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts, Haggai 2.9. And so I suggest to us older Americans especially, Jesus wants so much more than what America used to be. He wants it to become the wonderful scent of a flower not yet found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. And so, as the quote in the bulletin says, let us not be like those people who always seem to be pallbearers at the funeral of the past. Let us utilize, by living the qualities of the dead, truth is ever new. Like the grass of morning, moist with glistening dew, all the old virtues are waiting to spread 
spring up afresh. God does not grow old. Verses 9 through 12 say, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Point 13. Okay, so if Jesus' first lesson was to teach the devil... It's not proper to give in and forego the path God has prepared for you to seek instead your own pleasures and comfort. For man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That was the first lesson. And the second lesson for the devil was that the worship of God was the greatest good and that the inheritance he has designed will be forever grander than something you or someone else might fabricate. If that was the second lesson, then here's the third lesson for the devil. Don't be presumptuous and fail to observe the proper limits of God. All three are things the devil was guilty of, wanting and doing. Point 14. Jesus uh, needed to prove nothing to the devil. Satan challenges the Lord, okay, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and he quotes some scripture verses. Jesus, however, is like not playing that game. He's not enticed. He did not live for Satan, he lived for the Father. And though Satan had handpicked some verses to use, still he left out one of which Jesus reminds him, You don't put God to the test. God sets boundaries and you should contain yourself within them. Jesus was an all scripture is inspired kind of guy. All scripture is inspired. And that's what gave him his purpose. That's what gave him breath of mind. Beware. Satan uses truth to support a lie. He uses it to hurt, to deceive, to steal, but it's a distortion of truth. It's not pure as it doesn't agree across the board from Genesis to Revelation. It has to agree. Jesus had full respect of the word of God. He stated once to his opponents, the scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35. Whereas a truncated use of God's word, that's at the root, that's at the root of many church divisions. Truncated uses of God's word. Some people harp on certain points, hold, hold certain scripture portions, and they hold them up over and against opposing portions, or portions that would oppose what they're trying to make the make the case for, they, they disregard or they turn those around. They're forced 
when you take something out of its context or make it more important than it should be, they're forced to wrangle and twist and concoct an argument that does not truly honor the whole counsel of God. This is the approach taken by Satan as he tempts Jesus here. He's making some points. The devil, I warn you, also likes to get into the scrum with church people. There's a quote I came across the past, this past week while reading an Oz Guinness book. And I think it should caution you and me about the dangers of doing things like the devil. It says this, You cannot go down into hell with impunity. You must pay an entrance fee and an exit fee too. Verse 13 serves as our epilogue. It says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He did it, all right? Jesus resisted extreme temptation in his humanity. He, He relied on the Holy Spirit. He was guided by the word of God. And he taught the devil how to think about these things. Which brings me to point 15. The devil said, I'm I'm leaving for now, basically. Right? He didn't say that, but he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, does that mean another opportunity to tempt Jesus? Another frontal assault? Or by opportune time, does it mean that he would just look for an opportunity to kill him? We know there was a time when Jesus confronted Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. Why? Why did he say that? Well, because Peter was trying to talk him out of the mission. He didn't want Jesus suffering and killed. And Peter's lips were used in one way by the dark Lord, right? He was without thinking about it, being used by Satan. To get talked out of the mission, to get talked out of completing God's will, is getting talked out of seeking to save that which was lost. To offer up himself as a ransom for many, that's... That's where he's headed. I I don't think that meant that Peter was possessed, like Judas maybe. But I do think he was out of place. Or the opportune time might have something to do with the destruction um, more than just temptation. There's that Mel Gibson uh, movie, The Passion of the Christ. The passion meaning the suffering and all the way to crucifixion. And in that movie, um, Satan is presented in a a dark robe, kind of genderless, expressionless, facial paleness. He appears in that film in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, pretty much the whole film is 
like starting in the garden, I, I believe. I don't remember exactly, but he appears at first in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's being portrayed as trying to maybe tempt Jesus out of. And then he um, appears at the betrayal by Judas. And then also prior to the actual crucifixion. I do think, whether Mel Gibson got anything, um, I'm not saying any of that, but I do think that the passion of Christ was the opportune time Satan would wait for. Of course, though, and here's the glory of it, it was the time Jesus had been waiting for as well, the passion. The devil, he was... A, a conniving opportunist. You see that sometimes in salesmen, in, com- in competitors. They're opportunists. They twist and turn things to try to inject themselves into your customers' lives. The devil was a conniving opportunist. But God the Father, he took it as opportunity. He delivered his son over to be punished in order to provide an offer of salvation to mankind. God also used the opportunity to crush the serpent's head. And that's a glorious thing. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that um, in some of the conjecturing of how that temptation took place by the the devil, your creature, and our Lord, your Son. Um, That Scripture's not detracted from. I don't want to add words, Lord, but certainly in our minds, we add thoughts that shouldn't necessarily be added to when we read such a narrative. And so my hope is to dispel some of those thoughts and see what took place there, Lord Jesus, the, the real temptation that you, you experienced, how it could have come to you, and how difficult that would be and is when temptation comes to us. We just ask, I ask that you tend to us by your spirit and your word. Amen.